You okay, buddy? Yeah. You sure? You're breathing heavy. I'm okay. Good. Relax. To start, I just need some basic information. Basic? Simple things. Okay. Let's start with an easy one. What's your name? Roy. Roy what? Fremier. Well, Mr. Fremier, how old are you? Sixteen. Go to school? No. Why not? Don't know. Just don't. Live alone? No. You live with your mother and your brother Bill, don't you? Yeah. Good, good. You're doing fine. But now I'll need to ask you some harder questions. Okay? Can you handle that? Yeah. Good boy. Your brother is in some hot water, isn't he? He's being accused of something bad. Accused? He did something bad to a little girl. Jenny Connor. Oh. To be frank, Mr. Fermier, I think you might know something about that. That's why you're here today. I think you have a story about Bill and the little girl. I... Don't be shy. I... Relax. You aren't in any trouble. Just answer me one question. Did you see Bill and Jenny go into the woods? I didn't see them. Really? I saw Jenny, but Bill was home. You say you saw Jenny go into the woods, but Bill was at home? Yeah. Mr. Vermeer, I find that a wee bit hard to believe. You know, we found Bill's jacket in the woods. We found his jacket soaked with a pint of blood. Jenny's blood. We found her too. Funny enough, she was just a few yards away. We took some pictures. Wanna see? Pictures? Of the body. Wanna see? No. No, I expect you don't. They're not pretty. But nevertheless, they beg a question. What was Jenny's blood doing on Bill's jacket? And why do we have a dozen witnesses claim to have seen them leave together from the football game? Witnesses? Mr. Vermeer, I know you followed them from the field. We have it on CCTV. So I ask you again, did you see Bill take Jenny into the woods? I... Did you? I didn't. I think you're lying. Bill was home. We go together from football. Bill said take Jenny home. You took Jenny? It was cold. Bill said take Jenny and take my jacket. I said let's go into the woods. Jenny said no. It made me mad. I pushed her. She hurt her head. What? I hit her in the woods. I was scared. I didn't want to get in trouble. She woke up. She was mad and screaming, so I hit her. I hit her so that she would shut up. And the jacket? Jacket? Bill's jacket. I hid it. Where? Under my bed. Christ. No, not under your bed. Um. Think. For once in your life, fucking think. You hid it in the woods. I hid it in the woods. Yeah, don't forget. It's important. Sorry. When they ask for real, you have to remember. I'm sorry for swearing. I hate seeing you made a fool of, is all. I know, Bill. I shouldn't have read it. It was a normal day, and it was just one of the numerous posts I clicked on. It wasn't weird or anything. Just another post. Another random scary story that was made up by an anonymous user. It wasn't even that terrifying. 
But after reading that post, it was as if something had changed in the air. I can't even explain it. The way the air seemed to be breathing with me as I read the post creeped me out. In. Out. Can you feel it? The air became heavy, pressing against your chest. Breathe again. Breathe slowly and then you'll hear it. The random sounds that you weren't aware of. Listen closely. No, don't tear your eyes away from the screen. Don't look at it. Just listen. Don't reveal that you know that it's there. Just listen. Listen closely to the background noise. It will seem like a normal sound. Maybe an electric hum, the sound of your pets, or maybe even insects. But it will sound unnatural. Can you hear it? After you hear it, please, 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 don't look at your reflection. No, not only your mirror, any object that can reflect light. Even if the reflection is just a hazy blur. Avoid anything at all where you can see your reflection. Because if you do, you will see it's behind you. And you won't be able to help yourself. You will look at it. It's a compulsion. Like the way you can see at the corner of your eyes. You will see it. And once you do, it will know that you know about it. It's hard, isn't it? That's why I shouldn't have read it. And you shouldn't have read it too. I love you, mom. I can hear footsteps on the stairs. I think he's outside my room. I hear sirens, but they're far away. I'm hiding in the closet. I hope he didn't hear me. Hang on, I heard something downstairs. The cops are already here looking for him. They'll catch him. Don't worry, Mom. I'm safe. I love you. The cop said he's some escaped serial killer, and he's been breaking into homes around the area. Yes, Mom. It's on the news now. I'll keep the doors locked. Messages are displayed in chronological order, with the most recent at the top. Yes, Mom. It's on the news now. I'll keep the doors locked. The cop said he's some escaped serial killer, and he's been breaking into homes around the area. Don't worry, Mom. I'm safe. I love you. The cops are already here looking for him. They'll catch him. Hang on. I heard something downstairs. I'm hiding in the closet. I hope he didn't hear me. I hear sirens, but they're far away. I can hear footsteps on the stairs. I think he's outside my room. I love you, Mom. I have a little problem. First off, my name is Toby. I'm a middle-aged widower with one beautiful daughter and a modest home in the suburb close to one of the main cities. It's been a bit of a struggle being a single father and I'll admit to getting the odd stare from some people. But after I explain to them about my wife and what happened, most of them understand and let me continue on with my day. My neighbor is normally the worst for this though. She keeps telling me I should put my daughter into foster care or that I'm secretly a pedophile. She seems to be unable to see how it's affecting me and my daughter. I think she just doesn't like the idea of a man raising a little girl 
She thinks I'm going to push her into some kind of role or something, but I would never do anything to my little cupcake. Oh, I should probably tell you about her, shouldn't I? Well, her name is Alice, my daughter, not my neighbor. She's about seven years old now, and she loves to play outside. The moment I open the door, she tends to just run out as fast as she can to go meet new people. She loves meeting people and tends to run over to them and tug on their hands to say hello. You see, sadly Alice is mute and can't really talk at all. She can make hand gestures and faces, but she doesn't know any sign language yet, so we kind of have to guess what she wants a lot of the time. I always explain this to people she meets and introduce her and myself to them. We end up having a chat before I have to grab Alice's hand and drag her back home. If I didn't, she would spend the whole night outside. I take her home and pull her downstairs into her room and put her to bed. I give her medicine to put her to sleep and put the chains on her hands and feet so she doesn't kick or fight like she used to. She used to scream as well. Cutting her tongue out has fixed that little problem, but not before the neighbor heard her. After she stops fighting and the drugs have made her relax, I use my scalpel and get to work on Alice. The demons that are in Alice are what took my lovely Stacy away from me. So I will simply have to cut them out piece by piece. Which reminds me, my little problem. How do you deal with a nosy neighbor? I have a request. First off, Hi, my name is Daniel, and I have a small request for you all. I want you to smile a little more if you would. You see, I'm a dentist, and I love to see people's teeth. I've made a career of fixing them, so I tend to like seeing my work and other dentist work on display. The world is such a better place if you smile. It shows everyone that you care and that life isn't so hard. Some people have the most wonderful of smiles, and they deserve to be put on display. I love seeing my clients' happy faces. It lets me see how good of a job I am doing and how perfect those teeth of theirs really are. Oh, how I wish I could take those grins and hang them on the wall for all to see. Truly, they are works of art. I often stand outside my clinic just watching people, just looking at those little smiles, just so I can get a glimpse at those lovely little things. The best of them I invite into my shop for a complimentary clean because I can't help but want to get a closer look to just savor the sight of them. I will admit, sometimes I can't help myself. I take longer than I need to clean them just so I can keep looking at them. I just want to see those perfect clean teeth a little longer. I can't always take them home, unfortunately. People get so attached to their teeth, but on occasion, I have managed to get them to give them up. Pulling teeth isn't as hard as everyone thinks. Most people would use anesthetic, but I find a couple of the leather straps and a good pair of pliers to do the trick. The gargled screams they make can be so distracting, but luckily, most of them pass out from the pain before I get to the molars, and that's when I can really get to pulling. Some smiles are just too good to lose, but it's hard to find them a lot of the time. So help me out. Smile, will you? I've been a wedding photographer for nearly 10 years and I've thought I've seen it all. Trashy, beautiful, tragic, hilarious, or just bizarre. I have stories. 
I've had the typical groom, getting caught with the maid of honor, family getting to brawls, brides ODing in the bathroom, gay couples having no one to attend their weddings, or worse, the one uninvited homophobic relative crashing just to be a dick. But we aren't here for the typical stories. If we were, we'd be here all day. We're here for the wedding from last October. Fall weddings are probably my favorite. If I ever get married, I'll probably get hitched in the fall. It was the parents of the brides that came to me, asking for my services for a wedding in two weeks. Their original photographer apparently up and quit on them, and they were desperate to have their darling daughter's wedding immortalized in picture format. Luckily for them, I had a clear schedule. I did charge them extra for the suddenness of it all, but judging from the father's Rolex, it wasn't that big of a deal. One thing I'm good at is guessing family's wealth status, and once again, I was on point. The sea rights were rolling in dough. Not that I really like them though. I'm not required to like all my clients. Although, it does make for things to be a little more relaxing. Harold Seawright absolutely leered at my chest whenever he thought I wasn't looking. And Carol was clearly a trophy wife that was over the hill that generally looked more like plastic than her. Nothing wrong with getting plastic surgery or Botox, but there's got to be a cutoff at some point. I think I should have been more off-put by the parents coming to me rather than the bride, but I just figured said bride was too busy with other wedding planning shit and didn't think too hard on it. Day came and uh, oh boy, I realized I was getting into something I didn't want to be a part of right away. First time I saw the bride, Tanya, I had a brief moment of, I don't know how old this girl is. She could have been 16, she could have been just 18, definitely not over 20 though. I see young marriages when it's a shotgun affair, but then I met the groom, Marcel Wingate, who was definitely no younger than 30, and Marcel was just, something felt off. The man was a giant for one, he towered over me, let alone Tanya, with his long, pale face and sunken eyes, he could have been fucking lurch from the Adams family. When he shook my hand and introduced himself, I barely repressed a shiver. But years of practice helped me to smile and act like there wasn't something slimy about all of this. Tanya never said a word when she was made over for her big day. Only Carol did, chirping and twittering about, How about you make her hair a little bigger? Or, make her eyes pop. She has such pretty eyelashes. Luckily, Carol had to go have a smoke every 15 minutes so the makeup and hair people could have a few moments of actual work. By the time it was all over, Tanya looked perfect. Her dress was basically a white ball gown. A tiara was placed on her strawberry blonde hair, cheeks blushing in a perfect pink. But unlike most brides, she still hadn't said a word, and those sure as hell weren't tears of joy that she was holding back. I'm sure you heard about the first look photo fad. I find it great to get a perfect expression that the groom makes when he sees the bride in a dress for the first time. It's usually quite cute. This was the first time I ever shot a photo where I truly believe it was the first time the bride and groom have actually looked at each other. Marcel did seem to have his breath taken away by the lovely bride, but her expression was less than thrilled as he took her hand and gave it a tight squeeze. My stomach turned when he leaned over for a kiss on the cheek and she quite obviously flinched. It's time I put a pin in the myth that arranged marriages only happen in foreign countries and only people from certain cultures take part in it. 
They happen all the time in the US, and more often than not, it's an old man who wants a virgin bride, and by virgin, I mean still in fucking high school. This wouldn't be the first one I was hired to photograph. I managed to catch Tanya alone in the room she got ready in, sitting next to an unopened window twirling an unlit cigarette between her fingers. Need a light? I offered as I came in. No thanks, I don't smoke, but they say it makes you feel better, right? Looking up at me with those doll-like blue eyes. It also gives you lung and throat cancer. I took the cigarette from her and lit it up myself. But I'm a bad example, so do as I say, not as I do. Now that got a smile out of her, even if it only lasted a second. How often do you smoke? She asked. Depends on the day. Usually I have two or three. Bad day, I can have a few more. I lowered the cigarette and looked down at her. How old are you, Tanya? 19. 20 in a few weeks. I have a bit of a baby face. She poked one of her cheeks. Why do you care? I glanced at the door to make sure Carol wasn't going to barge in. Tanya, are you not okay with this? The wedding? I asked quietly. Tanya's eyes widened. Damn, you're good. She also glanced at the door. Harold, my stepdad, arranged all of this. If he had it his way, it would have happened when I was 15, but Marcel kept delaying. Business, apparently. He tried to delay another year, but my dad implied that he had other offers. She shivered and wrapped her arms around herself. If I say no, Harold will kick me out and cut me off, freeze my bank accounts. I have nothing and no one, and I don't know what I would do if that happened. I reached into my purse and pulled out one of my business cards. Flip over the card. It's a number for a women's shelter. They specialize in helping women escape from dangerous home situations. They hide them and help them get started in a new city, if need be. Below is my personal home number, if you just need to talk, okay? Tanya took the card and clung onto it tightly and tucked it into her bra. You might be the nicest person I've ever met, she murmured. I gave her shoulder a squeeze. I try, before extinguishing the cigarette on the windowsill. If you ever need to escape any time tonight, just ask me to help you go to the bathroom. We can pull a whole runaway bride, I joked. That got another laugh out of her, just in time for her mom to pop into the room. Well, what's taking you so long? Hurry up, the wedding's gonna start in 15 minutes. I don't want you to cry and make your face all blotchy and ugly, she whined. Tanya's brief joy faded and she gave me one more sad look before following her mom out. The ceremony would have been so much more beautiful if I didn't know the dirty little secret behind it all. Tanya didn't smile. I don't even think one of those bridesmaids was actually a friend of hers, or at least, not a sincere one. When the priest said, You may kiss your bride, Tanya let a tear slip down her cheek when Marcel leaned down to kiss her. I was seriously considering calling the cops, but what could they do? Tanya would likely cave and say nothing was wrong, and since she wasn't a minor, they couldn't label Marcel as a pedo and her stepfather as a child seller. It still didn't make the situation any less shady. All I could do was snap pictures of the worst day of Tanya's life. At the reception, I was constantly being nagged by Carol about what pictures to take, to the point where I wanted to rip her hair out. But I did notice something different about the first dance between the couple. Tanya at first was stiff as a board, 
reluctant to even touch Marcel, but he leaned down and whispered something into her ear. Her entire demeanor changed in the blink of an eye to one of surprise, and I managed to read her lips. Really? Marcel nodded, and I managed to catch a picture of the first smile Tanya had since she said I do. By the end of the dance, she was actually starting to get into it, resting her head on his chest and swaying to a thousand years. It was a complete 180 change. Tanya was now one of the happiest and, dare I say, flirtiest brides I've ever seen. She leaned up to kiss him on the cheek as they sat down, something that even took Marcel by surprise, judging by how he blushed. I generally started to wonder if Marcel slipped something in her drink to get her acting so happy when Carol started nagging me again about where her husband was. She was the kind of mother who forgot that this was her child's wedding instead of her own, and she wanted pictures of her and Harold. In order to get the fuck away from her, I told her I'll go find him. He had been hitting up the open bar a little hard that night. I assumed that he was in the bathroom either throwing up or cheating on his wife. It could have gone either way at this point. When I approached the men's room, I heard something that sounded like gargling or swallowing. Ew, I know. But I kind of hoped it would ruin this nasty bitch's day if her husband was really cheating, so I opened the bathroom door with my camera at the ready. I made contact with Harold, or rather, I made contact with Harold's head. It was sitting in the sink, expression twisted in abject horror. The room was soaked in blood, body parts strewn all around the floor. Meanwhile, Marcel had stripped out of his tuxedo and was currently swallowing Harold's arm, whole. Now, I was wondering if I had something slipped in my champagne. Humans can't unhinge their jaw like that, each gulp taking Harold's arm deeper down his throat. I saw the tips of Harold's fingers disappearing like a small wave of goodbye, and then I dropped my camera. Yes, I heard something break. No, I didn't care. I just saw the groom eat the goddamn father of the bride. Marcel's head shot up, and his eyes, before now they were dull, watery gray, but now they were molted brown and red with slitted pupils. I felt frozen when those eyes looked at me. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. One moment. Marcel turned to the sink that was free of the man's head and vomited. I heard several things clatter on the porcelain before he fetched them out and washed them off. With an embarrassing clearing of his throat, he walked up to me and pulled me into the bathroom. I thought I was dead, but instead Marcel placed several diamonds in my palm. For the camera, I didn't mean to startle you. Uh... I managed to get out as I stared at the handful of diamonds. This would pay for more than the camera. Why did you? Devour Harold? Oh, I've wanted to do that for years. Marcel chuckled as he grabbed some paper towels to wipe off his chin. Like that would take away from the fact that he still had a naked body in front of me. A terrible person actually tastes quite divine. You would taste absolutely terrible. It would be like swallowing nails. Meanwhile, a man who offers his own daughter as a sacrificial lamb to someone he knows eats humans. He tastes like the richest cut of steak, cooked medium rare, and seasoned to perfection. Jesus Christ, this twisted situation had taken a whole new level of fucked up. Wait, he is seriously? Oh, absolutely. Marcel snorted, and he'd do it again. All for what happens when my stomach possesses human bone. 
I clutched the diamonds. You're not going to hurt Tanya? I asked. Marcel shook his head vigorously. God no. I kept delaying the wedding in hopes that she would manage to find a way out. But I think Harold was getting bored of my cold feet. There'd be plenty of others willing to pay for her. Even if my payment would be easily trice what others would offer. God, I started to feel a little dizzy. Here I was, talking to a human eating groom. I glanced out the door, and a horrible idea entered my brain. One that would surely earn Marcel's good favor and help out Tanya. So if I told Carol she could find her husband in the men's room, Marcel seemed puzzled for a second, but caught on quickly with a nod. He picked up the head and tossed it into one of the stalls. I heard a splash in one of the toilets and almost started giggling. I was nearing hysteria. Go right ahead, I'll be waiting, he said as he kicked some more limbs out of sight. I almost left when I had to ask one more question. What the hell are you? Marcel cocked his head to the side before he changed, just for a second. One moment he was a blood-soaked man, absolutely horrifying but normal. The next he was a snake, sort of. His body was gone, replaced by the body of an anaconda, but his head was still the same, minus the flick of a slim, forked tongue in his mouth. Then he was back to normal. He responded with a shrug. Funny enough, I was hoping you'd tell me. I don't have a clue. I left the bathroom and bumped into Carol almost immediately in the hallway. Well, where is he? I pointed my thumb towards the bathroom. Think he's not feeling so well, I said before I was nearly bowled over by the grumpy bitch. I watched long enough for her to open the door and for the scaled tail to shoot out, snag her around the arm and drag her into the bathroom before I headed back to the wedding. The problem seemed to solve itself. Marcel came back. The men's room locked after apparently someone got quite sick in there. Tanya no longer had to behave a certain way to please her mom, and I think she had a good night. I used my backup camera to make sure I got all the pictures of her smiling. Carol and Harold vanished into thin air, never to be seen or heard from again, and the diamonds paid for quite a nice new camera. Like I said, it's been a year, and I sure as hell haven't forgotten about the wedding. But what prompted me to share it was that I got a friend request from Tanya on Facebook. I normally don't accept friend requests from previous clients, but this one time I chose to make an exception. She does look so much better. She's going to college. She now sculpts and paints. She regularly volunteers at the women's shelter I directed her to when we first met. And every Friday night is a group date night at the local arcade with some of Marcel's friends that now appear to be her friends as well. Apparently, Marcel is quite a dance dance revolution master, but is terrible at shooting games. Her most recent photo was her and Marcel smiling, and she was holding up an ultrasound picture. Ding. My phone vibrated and I looked at it with excitement. A new message from Peter. As I read it, I could feel my cheeks getting red. Would you like to meet up on Tuesday? I made a little dance and replied immediately. I had been waiting for him to ask me out since we started chatting. I knew I could have just asked, but I was too shy. It was just fortunate for me that he had the guts to ask me out. Yeah, I'd love to. 
I wrote back. We wrote each other back and forth about where we wanted to meet and what we should do. We agreed to grab coffee and maybe have dinner if we hit it off. I called my best friend Sarah and told her all about my new date. I'm so excited Sarah, I can't wait to meet him. I told her over the phone. She seemed a lot more skeptical than me. How long have you guys been writing together? Do you know anything about him? What if he's not who he says he is? I know you're concerned that he's a crazy person, but it was also you who told me to meet someone after I broke up with Brian. So come on, I'm only doing what you told me. Besides, it's so cliche to murder someone you meet online. Yeah, I know what I said, but I didn't mean meet someone online. I offered multiple times to go out on the weekends, but he never took me up on my offer. I promise to text you when I meet him and give you updates so you know that I'm alive. I chuckled. Fine, just remember to take care of yourself and don't do anything you're not comfortable with. We said our goodbyes and the rest of the day I spent fussing over what to wear on the date and read our old messages so I could remember what his favorite band was, his favorite movie, and how much I told him about myself. I was so nervous before our date that I couldn't eat anything all day. I put on a fine dress that wasn't too revealing and neither too boring. Half an hour before we were supposed to meet, I walked down to the park and started waiting for him. I kept looking at my phone and feeling the need to run away. What if he really was a psycho? Or even worse, what if we didn't have any chemistry in real life? I tried to push those concerns aside when I saw a man my age with brown hair and glasses approach me. Hi, are you Cassie? He asked me nervously. Yeah, and you're Peter? It's very nice to meet you. We gave each other an awkward hug and decided to walk around the park for a bit. It was no effort at all to talk to Peter and I quickly became relaxed in his company. He was very funny and asked me if I had been concerned about him being a maniac. I told him about Sarah's warnings about meeting someone online. Don't worry, I didn't bring my axe. I couldn't fit in the trunk of my car. He laughed and looked at me. After we had our coffee, we decided to skip dinner and have a couple beers. Peter quickly became drunk and talked nonsense, and I laughingly pointed out how he's the worst lightweight I had ever seen. I swear, I normally don't get this drunk off one beer. I guess it's because it's been a long day. You know, I looked forward to meeting you, so work felt like an eternity. I smiled and told him I felt the same way. It soon became clear that I had to take Peter home after he had a couple beers. I didn't mind helping him find his way home, and it's not like I was already going to sleep with him or anything. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. He lived a couple streets from the bar, and with me supporting most of his weight, we finally got there. Peter kept missing the keyhole, so I took the keys from him and let us inside. He almost fell on the floor but managed to stumble through the small apartment and land on his bed. I couldn't help but laugh a little, and I closed the door. I made sure it was locked before I walked into his bedroom. Peter had trouble keeping his eyes open, but I was sure that he saw me pull out the rope and the butterfly knife from my big purse. His eyes almost disappeared under his hair as he saw me get ready for business. I know you didn't expect this, most of you guys never do, but it's just way easier to find people online. 
Besides, who would ever be afraid of a small woman in a cute dress with flowers on it? Now you've learned that you probably should have been, but it's way too late for that. I smiled at him with my pearly white teeth as he tried to scream through his sedated state. I couldn't help but laugh at his patheticness and got to work. I've always been the ugly duckling. I was bullied mercilessly through my high school years for my looks. It's left an undeniable impression on me throughout life and a physical impression as well. I've always self-harmed to take the pain away, but I'm done playing victim. I'm gonna get surgery and blossom into the beautiful swan I always dreamt I could be. For the first time I could remember, I was generally happy. I was soaring on cloud nine, but as I left each doctor consultation, my mood plummeted. These were eye-popping prices they were talking about. For the amount of cosmetic work I wanted, it would take a lifetime to pay for everything. I went to my brother Tom's house to vent. To my shock, he said he could actually help me. He was a failed med student, but that was only because he smoked too much pot and missed classes. He said he would be able to get the medical supplies and conduct the surgeries himself. It sounds insane, I know. I too was understandably nervous about the idea of my brother performing surgeries on me outside of a hospital setting. But he showed me some videos of his trials during med school and it eased my mind. I couldn't continue life the way I was. I would rather risk death than live another day being this freak. The first thing I wanted were new breasts. My brother got the supplies and we set up a date for the surgery. I was shaking with anxiety, but he pumped me with some drugs and I was out like a light. When I woke up, I had a tremendous pain in my chest, but they were there. I had the breast I always wanted. He even fixed my deformed nipples. The scars looked hideous, but my brother assured me that they would lighten. Next, he performed a rhinoplasty for my new nose. Once again, the nose looked perfect, but the stitches surrounding were horrendous. I couldn't complain though. He was giving me thousands of dollars of surgery for free. I became addicted. I wanted more. I needed more. I immediately had work done to my ears within the same week. I walked out of the house with confidence for the first time, and I think the surgery was actually working. People were giving me looks everywhere I went. I hadn't got this much attention before. I was so excited. I wanted to go home to plan more surgeries. When I went to take a shower, I noticed something alarming. My breasts were discolored and pus oozed from the stitched area. After my makeup had been washed off and I looked in the mirror, my nose had the same issue. My ears as well. I was mortified and needed answers immediately. As I was about to call him, I saw his photo on the TV. Local man arrested in a string of grave robberies. My boyfriend was embarking on a business trip across the country. It would mark the first time we would be apart for an extended period of time since we began dating. As his truck backed out of the driveway, I felt my eyes water. We had only been together for a few months. Why was I already this attached? I dried my tears, caked my face with makeup, and headed to work. 
I prayed that my co-workers wouldn't be able to see this emotional wreck shimmering beneath the facade. Once I arrived, I knew I should have just called out sick. He consumed my thoughts and my mind was racing like an American pharaoh down the home stretch. I checked my phone every couple minutes. No text. No calls. Was his flight delayed? Had he not been boarded yet? I watched Final Destination for the first time this week. Why the fuck did I do that? I knew if I just heard his voice, all my worries would go away. When lunchtime arrived, I raced out to my car. I called him. No answer. I left a message, then text him. Then again. Crickets. I was losing my mind, and if I returned to work like this, my job would be next. So I made up some bullshit excuse about a family emergency and booked it out of there. I needed to drive to the airport to find out what was going on. I needed to know that he was okay. As I made my way down the road, I decided to call again. Straight to voicemail. Was he ignoring me? Was he already on his flight? My confusion only intensified when I saw a truck pass me in the opposite direction. Not any truck. His truck. Without thinking, I made an abrupt U-turn and started following him. I kept my distance so he wouldn't spot me, but there wasn't a business trip in the first place. Maybe he was hiding something from me. I followed him for miles until we hit a dirt road leading directly to a home. My heart sank when I saw a woman coming out to greet the truck. I could feel my blood boiling beneath my skin. My heart was pounding so hard, it looked like an alien would pop through my chest any moment. The woman was glowing with excitement as she talked through the truck window. I grabbed a screwdriver from the glove box and thought of how I would approach them. The truck door opened and he hopped out, but he wasn't my boyfriend. He was a man I'd never seen before. He popped the trunk to reveal the rolled up carpet. I stealthily exited my vehicle and hid in the brush nearby to listen in. I can't thank you enough. Dormwrecker should get back from her shift in a couple hours. Do what you want, just don't be messy. Having a stalker is living hell. Constant anxiety, turning every corner in fear, leaving your phone off to avoid calls. It feels like my life has been wasting away and I'm simply playing a game of survival rather than living. It started when I began receiving anonymous letters in my mailbox. Each one became more menacing and explicit. It turned into photos being left. Photos of me, out in public, in my home, while I slept. It then erupted into an onslaught of terror, constant phone calls, obvious signs of tampering in my home, even death threats against family. The sole issue has shaped my life and the way I choose to live. My family distanced themselves a bit after the death threats towards them, then essentially told me to reach out once the situation had been handled. My friendships began to disintegrate. I guess they grew tired of my paranoia bringing down the mood. I had to quit my job because I became frightened to leave my house for such a long duration during the day. The only bright light in my life is my husband. While other guys shied away from dating me, he understood my fears and vowed to help me and support me in any way. I remember our first date ended with him staying the night in his car to look out for my stalker. His commitment and love is everything to me. That's why it hurts me that he's being dragged into this hell, constant letters threatening to kill him, 
having his tires spiked, and so much more. I remember a big commotion downstairs one night. My husband came sprinting back upstairs into my room and told me that there was a guy in our house, but he chased him out. I thank God for him being there, but I also die inside knowing I put him in this type of danger. My husband took a job at home to accommodate me and provide me with a constant sense of security. We are usually always together, but this day my husband had to go out. I was completely on edge, and to distract my mind, I decided to go on my old Facebook account. I grew bitter seeing all my former friends post about being out partying. I decided I would delete all my photos with them and rid them from my life for good. As I began deleting, I viewed an old photo of us at the beach, smiling, happy, free. In the background, I could see my husband. How funny, I thought. It's like one of those photos that foreshadow our destiny together. I clicked on the next photo and saw my husband in the background again, then another, and another. I could feel the blood drain from my face and instant nausea set in. I shut down the computer and stared blankly ahead. I could see my husband's reflection staring back. The raid was swift and decisive, our entire town decimated in an instant. The poor souls unfortunate enough to survive the initial onslaught were now relegated to servitude. We had become pawns in their sick game. The rules were simple. Two individuals entered the arena and one comes out victorious. The winner received food. The loser wouldn't have to worry about eating again. We sat in individual pitch black pods until our captors dragged us out for battle. The wait between fights could last days, but it was impossible to know just how long. All I knew is that I was hungry. Correction, I was starving. It's been a while since my last brawl and the measly bowl of rice I earned from the blood-soaked victory. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to the battle pairings. Big versus small, old versus young, man versus woman. They don't care about an even fight, they just want carnage. Food deprivation inflicts unparalleled pain and misery on a human being. It affects the mind and body to a degree that words just simply can't justify. The sound the stomach makes when desperately pleading for substance is chilling. The mind slows to a turtle-like crawl in an effort to maintain cognitive function. Random memories will flood your neocortex in an effort to block out the thought of food, but it's never successful. Suddenly, I hear the latch of my pod being lifted. My sanctuary has finally arrived. As I'm dragged into the arena, I try to mentally prepare myself for any type of opponent that could be thrown my way. A rotisserie chicken is shown on the Drumbotron, the bounty for this deathmatch. My lips salivate at the image on the screen. The size or experience of my opponent is now an afterthought. I was stand toe to toe with Zeus if it meant a morsel of that paltry. The screams and heckles of savages filling the stands shook the ground beneath me. As the gates ascended, I stared across the blood-drenched sand and surveyed my opponent. My heart momentarily stopped as I recognized the face of my opponent, my son. He was skeleton thin, fresh piss migrated down the pant leg, and a look of sheer terror plastered his adolescent face. I was overcome with emotion and immediately dropped to my knee in prayer, 
Thank you for allowing me to eat once more. I have a growing suspicion that my wife is trying to leave me. She's always been a bit of a complainer. I knew that from the time we met, but recently, it's been non-stop. Her list of complaints grow more each day, just like her unhappiness. She says I don't do enough to support her. She claims there's never been enough food or clothing for her, but there always seems to be enough alcohol for me. What a hypocrite. Alcohol is actually how we met. I almost laugh when she makes these asinine comments. Doesn't she know I'm trying my best? I never realized how expensive it would be to settle down with a girl, yet I always take extra shifts at work to scrounge what little I can. I know that she thinks about other men, and she certainly thinks I have interest in other women. She always barks at me to never bring another girl back to the house. She taunts me and says if a girl wound up with me, it would ruin their life. How lowly my wife thinks of me. She makes me out to be the cold one in our relationship. But our fifth anniversary is this week and she didn't even acknowledge it. She spent that day telling me how awful I was and how she wanted to move back in with her parents. Leave me for her parents? The same parents you couldn't wait to get away from when our young love blossomed. Every once in a while she'll go on a huge tirade about how she'll kill me or she'll get in contact with the cops for how I've treated her. Part of me hopes she follows through. She's the one that hits me and constantly berates me with abusive language whenever I go near her. Maybe it's time everyone knew she wasn't the angel they made her out to be. She's been quieter than usual and I feel like today is the day she actually builds up the courage to leave me. The day she tosses aside financial support, consistent love and affection and tries to begin anew. I pretend to go to work but I park around the corner. Bingo. I see my wife frantically pounding on the window, screaming on the top of her lungs. I sigh, get out of the car and walk towards the house before she alerts the neighbors. I could have never foreseen this type of behavior out of a runaway that was so eager to come back to my house and share a drink over five years ago. Some people grow up in cities. Some people grow up in the middle of nowhere. I like to believe both of them have their perks and fallbacks. Growing up in the city might mean missing out on roaming the town with your friends, free of adult supervision. Growing up in a small town, surrounded by a everyone-knows-everyone community, ensures many dangers are overlooked. I grew up in a small town and always pitied those who missed out on the freedoms I was blessed with. That is until that day. You see, I never imagined anything bad could happen to me. No one ever does, I suppose. Sure, we had some urban legends, like how the abandoned church had a female spirit that could be seen in the bell tower at midnight. This myth was busted by a few of my buddies and I after breaking in and climbing in ourselves for that up-close-and-personal view. We never saw anything, but Robert swore he did. He took off running down the steps, screaming, and when we finally caught up with him, he was outside dry heaving and had pissed his pants. Unless spirits have the ability to control a living person's bladder, this turned out to be just a rumor to scare us. Needless to say, he was made fun endlessly for getting scared about nothing. 
Robert was always the type to try to scare us. He was a practical joker. And though no one else thought so, I thought he was just trying to really sell it. Looking back on it, I think him peeing himself would have been too far to bring the joke. The thing that did scare me, however, was the cornfields. If the adults and older kids really wanted to scare us, this would have been the most effective way to do it. For context of the story, this takes place in the late 90s. I was 14 and pretty much free of any of the few strict rules my parents had on me. Again, I lived in a small town. The population was just over 1,000, nestled in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. Summers were the best. No school, no responsibilities. Endless land to explore, and a close group of friends I could always count on being available. My best buddy, Cole, lived two miles outside of town. He was a no-bullshit, straightforward guy. Even so, he was the type of person to have on your side because he'd get to the bottom of anything. We always had the best time on his family's farm. Four-wheelers, go-karts. Hell, if we were lucky, we would even be able to drive his brother's old Bronco and rip up the land behind the small forest in his backyard. You're probably wondering how this ties in with the overall story. Well, I'd often hang out there late at night, sometimes as late as 1 or 2 a.m. This would mean I'd have to bike a lonely, desolate road to get back home, surrounded by cornfields on both sides. I'd also have to pass an old graveyard around the halfway point. That part, surprisingly, never really bothered me. The only fortunate part about any of this was Cole's long driveway. I could use it to gain as much speed as I could to bolt those two miles. Riding in the middle of the night alone, I don't think the paranoia is unreasonable. This goes beyond paranoia. I could swear I sense something else with me. Every single time, it gets worse. Have you ever driven past cornfields with a passenger window down? If you haven't, Try it sometime. You'll notice the sound of your tires reverberates through the stalks of corn. Now imagine that, but on a bike, by yourself in the middle of the night. The sound was strikingly similar to as if someone was running through the cornfield alongside me. Again, this was the 90s, so it's not like I could really research fucking wavelengths in the corn. Being a 14-year-old kid with a chip on his shoulder... I was not going to confess my paranoia to anyone either. I remember how much everyone made fun of Robert for pissing himself. What would they say to me if I spoke about this? So I did what anyone with a brain would do. I tried my best to ignore it. Moving on. It was a night in August. Clear skies and no wind. I'll spare you the details of the day. To summarize, I went to Cole's house around 5pm. We spent the day riding the trails we had built and played Super Nintendo late into the night. Cole was passing all my high scores in every game we played. I didn't mind, but he kept on insisting I was getting mad about it. I wasn't. Time flew by and before I knew it, it was 1am. It was time to go. Staying the night would have been preferred because my nerves were on high alert, like a sixth sense. But staying the night was something we never did, for some reason or another. We said our goodbyes and I stepped out into the cool night. I hopped on my bike, gained my usual speed, and I was off. 
I got about a quarter mile down the road, still pedaling as hard as I could. The sound from the cornfield was overbearing. You would have sworn that Cole's dog was running with me, just one row in. The smart thing to do would have been not to think about it, keep pedaling, and keep my eyes on the road. This sound though, it was getting to me. It was driving me mad. I slowed my pace a bit, and with it, the sound died down. Okay, it's just the noise of the bike. The next thing that happened should have been a red flag. The noise stopped, completely. I look over the cornfield, and nothing looks off. Despite the logic I felt, I take my eyes off the cornfield and put them straight ahead once more. Right in front of me was a black figure. I had no time to react before I was clotheslined off my bike. I hit the ground hard. I was dazed and it sounded like a flashbang had gone off. Knowing I was in danger, I tried to get back on my feet and run, but my attempt was fruitless. I was being dragged by my foot towards the cornfield. I didn't take the time to look at this thing. I started kicking and flailing, doing anything I could to make it lose its grip it had on me. I launched myself forward with my hands and kicked out with my free leg as hard as I could. Connecting with the face of this thing, its grip slipped and it fell backwards with my shoe. I got up and took off running. I didn't take the time to figure out which direction I was facing. Instead, I just ran. I could hear it gaining on me. The footsteps were rapidly approaching. I saw a single light in front of me. It was the graveyard. I knew that there was no way that this would help me, but at least I knew I was halfway. Reaching the graveyard and standing in front of the gates, completely exhausted, I realized the footsteps had completely disappeared. Where did it go? My question was soon answered when I saw the creature's silhouette just past the graveyard, standing on the road. What was I going to do? I turned around, thinking about running back to my friend's house. But as I did, I heard the same noise in the cornfield. The fastest I had ever heard it yet. Within what had to be two seconds, it was now standing in the road between Cole's house and I. How was it so fast? This can't be the end. I have so much more life to live. But the odd thing was, it just stood there, as if it was waiting for me. Out of options, I stood staring at the silhouette for what had to be ten minutes. I felt sick, and I was about to pass out. Whether that be from the fall, the exhaustion, or fear, I leaned up against the gate, slashed down, and collapsed. I woke up some time later. It's impossible to tell you how long I was out for, or if I had passed out. I don't know. But when I glanced up, I finally got my first real look at the creature. His head was poking through the cornstalks across the street. He had on a hoodie. He had those bright, glowing, white eyes and the whitest grin I had ever seen. He looked like a serial killer, about to devour his last meal. I don't know how else to explain that grin. His skin was dark and leathery, as if it had been rotting away for some time. The fear I felt was more than I could take, and I passed out once more. I awoke with the biggest headache I had ever experienced. Imagine dropping an anchor on your head. Opening my eyes seemed like a task far too difficult. The memories of the previous night began flooding my mind. It 
couldn't have been real, could it? No, there's no way. I opened my eyes to find myself in bed. Everything would be fine. It had just been a nightmare. Except, my bed isn't this hard, and the birds are never this loud. Upon opening my eyes, it was confirmed. It was all real. I jolted up, remembering where the man had been. But there was nothing. I walked back to my bike, which was still in the middle of the road, untouched, and pedaled slowly until I got home. It was apparently still pretty early, just past 7am to be exact. Too early for my parents to be awake, to start getting ready for work. Still exhausted, I laid in my bed, hoping sleep would take me over. It never did. I laid awake in bed all day and passed out later that night. After that night, I became recluse. The runner, as I later would dub this creature, ran through my mind every single day. I didn't go out anymore that summer, despite friends coming over constantly to check up on me. They eventually gave up, the same way I gave up on making sense of that day's events. School was back in session, and life moved on. You see, legends like this should end after a one-time encounter. The only way these things come back to haunt you is if you let it. I made the biggest mistake of my life at the end of that school year. Maybe the second biggest mistake. It's tough to say. Either way, if I would have kept my mouth shut, this would have been the end of the story. There's a chance I could have gotten past this at some point. But no. I had to fuck it all up. Robert was always a close friend. It was only natural for him to pull me aside one day after school. He cared. He always did. Remembering the incident at the church, I thought he would believe me. If there was someone to open up to, it had to be him. He basically pinned me into the corner, explained how everyone was concerned about me. He said he just wanted to know what was going on, so I told him everything. It felt good to finally get it off my chest. He was silent for a time. Turns out, I was right to think that he believed me. He brought up the night at the church. We hung out that night, talked about both our stories and the lasting effects of them for hours. Summer started, and I still wasn't ready to go out. Robert would come over from time to time, and I could tell the fact that I wouldn't go out really bothered him. It built up for a couple months until it was August once more. It was an average day. I spent the morning reading and playing video games in the living room. It was around 6pm when I got a knock at the door. It was Robert and Cole. I had been right that Robert would trust me. Even so, I was wrong that he would keep it to himself. Cole questioned me about that night immediately once I opened the door. Asked me why I let a fairy tales get in my head. This was classic Cole behavior. Always the logical, get to the bottom of things type. I didn't know what to say, but that didn't matter. He already made up his mind on how to bring this to a close. His plan was to bring Robert and I to the same road at midnight and take 10 steps in the cornfield. He would prove once and for all that there was nothing to be afraid of. It goes without saying that I begged him not to do it. I'm ashamed to say that my pleas came with a few tears. Of course he didn't listen, but what else could I do? 
I couldn't let him go out there and potentially be killed by the runner. I had to go with him. So we pumped up my bike's long since deflated tires. We waited until 11 o'clock and set off into the night. My parents not questioning why, just happy to see me finally leave the confines of their home. The ride was silent. No rustling in the corn. No conversation. No anything. Just the sound of our tires on the gravel. We were about 100 yards short of the graveyard when Cole stopped and said, Here. I would have continued my pleas. I would have said anything if I could. But no, I was too terrified to choke out any words. Cole grabbed his pocket watch and waited until it struck exactly midnight. I assume he was trying to subdue Robert's fears of the church by meeting the specific time of his encounter as well. He began walking into the corn. One step, two steps, three steps. He got to nine when he let out a blood-curdling scream. My fight or flight kicked in and I wouldn't let Cole be taken by that thing. I tore into the cornfield after him and found him, laughing. Nothing had happened. He was fine. You really believe this shit, don't you? He said, while barely containing his tears of laughter. Maybe he was right. Maybe there was nothing to fear at all. Maybe, just maybe, I had imagined everything. Even though I was mad at his prank, I felt relieved and let out a nervous giggle of my own. We walked back out of the cornfield together and looked up to see Robert in the middle of the road, sitting on his bike. That's not funny, Cole, he yelled. We were climbing out of the ditch, looking down at our feet to ensure we didn't trip and slide back down. Robert, look out, Cole shouted. Great, another prank. But no, the runner. He was standing right behind Robert. The same sick, twisted grin stretching from ear to ear. Robert never had a chance. The runner grabbed a hold of Robert and began dragging him and his bike into the cornfield. Robert screamed, and we tried our damnedest to catch up with him. It was useless. Once they were in the cornfield, they were gone. The runner was fast and had been dragging him what had to be 60 miles per hour through the cornfield. Robert's screams continued for minutes on end, miles and miles into the corn. That's the end. Robert was never found. Search parties looked for him for weeks. His parents haven't given up the search to this day. No one ever believed us, and honestly, I don't blame them. I don't know what the runner did with him. Cole never forgave himself and ended up going insane. I guess his logical brain couldn't process it. Maybe the guilt got to him. I don't know. What I do know is that I now live as far from the cornstalks as I can get. I live in the desert of Nevada and now try my best to lead a normal life day by day. I don't know if the runner is still out there. People go missing without a trace all the time. Perhaps the night of my first encounter, the runner didn't run to the other side of the graveyard. There's a chance it could have been a friend of his. But after seeing how fast he dragged Robert, it's safe to say either is possible. I don't know for sure, and I hope to never find out. I don't have a definite reason as to why the runner didn't take me when I was at the gates of the graveyard either. 
My best guess is that he can only traverse the cornfields and the roads in between. But again, I don't know for certain. So I ask, what do you hear when you're whizzing by a cornfield? Do you hear nothing? Or do you hear the faint sound of footsteps? Which is worse? Maybe if you hear nothing at all, it's already... I'm extremely worried about my mother. This year has been a turbulent one for my family and I think her fragile psyche might just break. It began after my brother took his life. Initially, my mother, father and I came together and the family was stronger than ever. But as so often happens, time went on, life got busy and the divide ensued. My mother craved constant emotional support, but it became overwhelming. My father was always tired from work. He was still grieving internally at the loss of his son and my mom's daily breakdowns became too much to handle. Mom began cutting herself and threatening her own suicide as a last ditch effort to win my father's love and affection, but it was futile. With the signing of a few papers, a 20 year marriage evaporated. Mom went into a complete tailspin post divorce. She stopped cooking, stopped cleaning, she stopped bathing and she stopped talking. We lived in a house of silence until the nighttime came when I could hear howls of heartbreak echo through the home. I loved my mom, but I knew it wasn't healthy for me to stay in this situation. The morning after another sleepless night, I told her I wanted to go live with my dad, at least until she pulled herself together. For the first time in weeks, she spoke, but it was the same she had used on my father. She told me if I leave, she'll have nothing to live for and kill herself. I told her she had stopped living a while ago. She's simply surviving at this point. I told her she needed some help and when I got home from school we could talk about it. When I arrived home an eerie feeling crept over me. The house was pitch black and my mom was nowhere in sight. I investigated the downstairs and found nothing. I checked her bedroom upstairs as well as the bathroom but they were clear. I walked down the hallway to my room and saw a dimly lit candle on the dresser. It was illuminating a note. I began reading and a chill ran up my spine just after the first few words. This wasn't a note, it was a suicide letter. My chest was pounding and I began to sweat. With each cryptic line, my heart sank deeper and tears flooded my eyes until I reached the bottom of the letter. When I reached the final two words, I became frozen in fear and the letter slipped from my grip. The final two words were simply a first and last name my name. Suddenly, I felt a cold breeze on my door slamming behind me. The candle went out and the room went dark. My mom passed away when I was just a few months old. She was a nature enthusiast who lived for hiking, but consequently, it would be the death of her as well. Her body was found at the bottom of a mountainside that she frequented. The impact of the fall was so severe that my family had to have a closed casket funeral. I only know my mom through stories that my dad tells me and the many videotapes she recorded before her passing. My mother loved to document her hikes. She would give tips, record the beautiful scenery, and in some videos just discuss life. I watched hundreds of these videos and it's the only real connection I feel to her. My mom was the breadwinner and since her passing, the family had been financially strapped. 
My father had taken on two jobs to make ends meet, but it's to the point where we'll have to downsize and move. Oddly enough, I think our neighbor Ralph is taking it harder than me and my dad. Ralph has been like a second father to me, always there to talk to, always buying me things I need and offering help whenever he can. My dad said he's a creep, but I think he's a good guy and I'll miss him. As I was packing up my things from the shed, I saw something strange. A floorboard was missing that I hadn't noticed before, and there was a filthy trash bag with a couple videos and a camcorder inside. My curiosity peaked, and I decided to go to my room and watch. I popped the first tape in and couldn't believe my eyes. It was my mom with Ralph. They were naked in a room. Jesus Christ, it was a sex tape. I removed the tape before my eyes were burned out of the sockets. I put the second tape in and saw my mom crying into the camera. She said that she was pregnant and Ralph was the father. I cried and screamed into my pillow with anger and despair. I felt bad for myself. I felt bad for my father. I was furious with Ralph, but did he even know? Did Dad? Then I noticed the tape remained in the camcorder. It was my mom on one of the hikes. Wait, I recognize those clothes. Those were the clothes that she died in. This was recorded the day of her death. As I watched, my mother reached the mountainside where she had fell to her death. I was about to eject the tape, but then I heard something. It was the voice of a man, and my mom seemed startled when they spoke. Then it happened. The camera captured the last moment when a man's hand pushes my mother to her death. What are you watching there? I heard coming from the window. The same voice that I heard in the video. An eerie silence filled the air as my dad and I locked eyes. I haven't seen a clock or the outside for a while, so I can't be certain, but I believe it's day 17 of my forced incarceration. Constant screams and demonic laughter echo through the hallways of this hellhole. The shock therapy torture has increased each day, and they've even begun experimenting with lobotomy surgery with horrific results. Asylum patients are seen as subhuman to many. Once dropped off here, it's like entering a portal to another world. Families don't visit, and the state leaves full control of the facilities to the doctors, nurses, and guards. That means, as this torture is ratcheted up, no one from the outside world is coming to stop it. Nobody knows or even cares what's happening behind these walls. Food rations have been put in place for the sheer purpose of inflicting suffering. They force medication into us, oftentimes on empty stomach, which creates awful nausea and discomfort. They prance around the facility in matching white uniforms, bestowing the phony title of doctors and nurses upon themselves. But in reality, they're just an organized mob. I've been observing the behavior at night, and what I've seen is bone chilling. Increasingly, people have been forcefully removed from their rooms and not returned. In the last few days, I've been marched into the cafeteria. I've been overwhelmed with a pungent odor. I tell myself I'm crazy, and it can't be what I think it is. My mind races with inhuman thoughts, but I'm starving. So I eat the chunky meat soup as served, and don't dare to question what it is. I've only remained alive due to my obedience. The beating has become increasingly violent and they've begun raiding rooms without notice for contraband. Paranoia has set in and they believe that we're planning a revolt. 
Discovery of the snow is a certain death sentence, so I must hide it away now. I pray order can be restored, but if not, I leave this as evidence of the horrible conditions and the atrocities that have been committed under this roof. God save us all. Dr. Williams. Day 17 of inmates running the asylum. My daughter begged for a puppy, and I finally caved. After work, I'll take her over to the local puppy shop, run by Old Earl. Earl had been running the establishment for close to three decades now, and had become somewhat of an unofficial mayor of our small town. The service was friendly, he was very reasonable with pricing, and the dogs always seemed to have a full lifespan. My shift ran late, and I scrambled to reach the shop with my daughter as Earl was closing. I even managed to dang his sign while parking in the rush to get there. He was kind enough to let us in as we made small talk while he gave my daughter a few treats and told her to pick the lucky pup. As my daughter gleefully ran around the shop, I took old Earl out to inspect the sign damage. He laughed it off and said that he'll call it even with the purchase of a pup. When we walked back inside, my daughter was missing. It was a small shop and I began to think she wandered outside to find us at some point. I tried to keep calm, but Earl filled me with concern when he told me he would need to check the basement because of drugs used for euthanasia are stored down there. After a thorough check, Earl said she wasn't down there and I was filled with some relief. Moments later, my daughter wandered back inside through the entrance door. I pulled her close to me and told her to never scare me like that again. She looked upset and when I asked her what puppy she had chosen, she told me she just wanted to go home. I apologized to Earl for the inconvenience, told him she must be frazzled from my panic of her missing and we would be back tomorrow. As we drove home, I asked my daughter why she wandered off and why she couldn't choose a puppy. Tears filled her eyes and she told me that she had run out of dog treats and looked around the shop for more. That's when she walked down to the basement area and became upset. She told me it wasn't fair that all the dogs upstairs would find a home and the kids locked in the basement wouldn't. I laid poolside perfecting my tan for the start of school next month. Mom was in the kitchen cooking her famous fettuccine alfredo and dad was on his way home with a movie from Redbox. My life was perfect but everything was about to change with the arrival of a new neighbor next door. He was a former police officer, probably mid-50s, possessed a firm drill sergeant-like tone, but was very friendly and talkative. Initially, he seemed like a good fit for the neighborhood. He was cordial and always made an effort to wave or say hi, and the presence of someone with law enforcement background provided a sense of security. But things began to unravel quickly and the catalyst seemed to be me. My neighbor took a sudden and keen interest in me. When I went outside, I could feel his eyes examining me. He would always wander over and try to start conversations, but as soon as he heard or saw my parents, he would leave. He asked me if I had any social media accounts. When I lied and said no, he asked if he could take a picture of me and proceeded to snap a pic before I could reply. I felt completely unnerved and frightened about his intentions for me. For all I knew, he could have been a murderer or a pedophile living mere feet from my home. 
I knew I needed to delve deeper, so one night, I aimed my telescope at his window, and what I saw only amplified the alarm bells going off in my head. This man was fixated on a picture of me on his phone, and I could even see a small stack of photos on his nightstand, a young girl's image on top. My blood ran cold at this, but confirmed my fear. He must be a pedophile. The next day I saw him sneakily rummaging through our trash can. I watched in horror and disbelief as he removed a used tampon, got into his car and sped off in the night. That was the final straw. I knew that morning that I would have to alert my parents and get in contact with the police. I awoke to the sound of police sirens and loud commotion downstairs. I hopped out of bed and saw my parents being taken away in handcuffs. I started screaming and crying as I rushed towards the doors, but I was stopped by the neighbor. With a horrified expression, he muttered, I'm so sorry. Those aren't your real parents. You were kidnapped and missing for the past 14 years. DNA test confirmed it. For some context, I'm a horror narrator. Creepypastas, no sleep, urban legends. If it's scary, I read it. I hover right around 50 subscribers, so by no means am I a large channel, but that's okay with me. I read it for me, it acts almost like a type of therapy. I suffer from PTSD, depression, and a host of medical issues, and the stories have become an escape. While I read mostly for myself, I do have a small group of friends who enjoy hearing me read, so twice weekly, I host live streams on my channel. It's a little twisted, but reading terrifying things brings me peace and reassures me that my reality could always be worse. That was until recently, at least. A few weeks ago, I was scrolling through Reddit looking for new stories, and I came across an author. Her story was strange and poorly edited, but I was getting closer and closer to my stream start time, so I went ahead and shot her a message. She was more than enthusiastic to have me read her story. Little did I know that that was the beginning of the end for my YouTube career. That night's stream was as normal as it could be. My friends were joking and laughing in the comments. The dogs didn't bark and my kids managed to be quiet the whole time. Truth be told, I read her story, but I'm not entirely sure anyone actually noticed it. It was nothing more than a space filler for me, something to prolong the time I got to spend reading and having fun with my friends. I don't mean to be rude, her story was utterly unremarkable. It was there, it existed, but it wasn't the type of story that causes great fanfare or that helps you gain subscribers. I didn't notice her in the stream, she surely didn't comment. It's not hard for me to notice a newcomer amongst all of my friends. She and her story slipped my mind until a few days later after my stream. She sent me a message telling me how great the stream was and how she had listened to the streams I had recorded in the past over and over again on a loop. It was strange and slightly uncomfortable, but I figured she had just been excited to hear her story read. I responded telling her I was glad she enjoyed my narration and thanked her for letting me read her story. I brushed off the message and went to bed. I can't say that my sleep was restless, but I can say I'm not a fan of being woken up by frantic phone calls from my friends Apparently, at some point when I was watching the inside of my eyelids, this writer decided to start posting letters to me on Reddit. My friends are like me and have no life, so it didn't take long for them to see the letters and for them to start calling and texting me to warn me about the letters. 
It was like they were taking turns bombarding me until they knew I was safe. After responding to the text and returning the missed calls, I sat down in front of my laptop, trying to work up the courage to see what she had written. The hair on the back of my neck stood up on end as I was reading her rambling about the voices in her head, how excessively she had been listening to me. She rambled about being sort of a demon and quoted Disney movies with ramblings about murder. I didn't have time to process it before a new message notification popped up. It was this girl. She had messaged me again and sent me a new story asking me to read it. Out of pure, morbid curiosity, I skimmed the story and not only was it horribly written, it followed no plotline and made no sense at all. Not wanting to be rude and being worried that she may be a serial killer, I sent her a message back. I told her as gently as I could that I thought her story needed work. I said that she really needed to edit it and to flush it out because it was far too short to narrate. I hoped deeply that she would be offended and would never message me again, but I was extremely wrong. She started bombarding me with links to stories she had written that were longer, but so much worse. They were basically incoherent ramblings and the world's longest run-on sentences. Everyone makes mistakes. There's bound to be errors in writing. It's just a thing that happens, and sometimes those errors may get through the editing process without being caught. But that wasn't the case here. It was like someone tried to write a creepypasta using the predictive text feature on a smartphone. After the fourth installment of what only can be described as a dumpster fire of a story, I decided to take the high road, or the coward's way out, depending on how you look at it. I started to ignore her. To be honest, blocking her didn't really cross my mind at this point. I wish it would have though. I was already stressed out enough without her adding on to it. We were in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. I was fresh out of a divorce and had an upcoming trip to go visit my family. The last thing I wanted or needed was some crazy obsessed chick stalking me. Things went quiet for a few days. If she had been listening to my streams, she would know I was planning a trip. And I think for once she had a coherent thought and probably figured out I wasn't responding to her because of my trip. In reality, while I was busy, I was actively avoiding Reddit and YouTube in hopes that she would find someone else new to cling on to. When I came home from my trip, I was in rough shape and somehow my internet was knocked out while I was gone, so I had to cancel several streams, making my total time away from YouTube and Reddit roughly three weeks, and it was three weeks of pure bliss. Yesterday, I was finally able to stream again. As I was setting up the stream and it was counting down, she popped into the chat. My friends were all painfully aware of who she was, so they were all waiting with bated breath trying to anticipate what she would do. It wasn't long before she started rambling and calling me master. She would make up stories about my channel while challenging the people who actually wrote the stories she was trying to imitate. She started demanding I read her letters, saying that her demons demanded it. She started fetishing me and it didn't take but a moment for one of my friends to speak up and call out for being so creepy. She went quiet and I managed to finish the stream mostly undisturbed. Once the stream was finished, I popped into a group video chat and that's where I learned about the most recent posts. While I was reading, my friends took it upon themselves to conduct some research and found out where she had been posting these letters that she had demanded I read. She had taken a story written by one of my friends who frequently writes for my channel and she completely bastardized it. 
She rambled about her and her demons feasting on my friend's bodies. She went into detail about me, how she would keep me safe from her demons, and she talked about torturing the various writers who had worked with me in the past. She swore I had promised to read more of her stories, but I never made anyone that promise. She talked about how, with each passing stream, she grew more and more angry when she didn't hear her stories. She went on about her many demons and how she questioned if holding them back was really the best idea after all. At the end of the post, she tagged me and left very thinly veiled threats in hopes of getting me to read her stories. My friends could see the look of pure horror in my face as I finished reading her message. I think they were just as creeped out as I was. A few of them tried to crack jokes to lighten the mood, while a couple others made sure I told my roommate what was happening and that I had a plan just in case she actually snapped. Before going to bed, I carefully made sure all the doors and windows were locked and that the pistol I kept on my nightstand was fully loaded. I tucked my kids in, checked on my roommate, and went to bed. When I woke up the next morning, everything seemed normal. I got up and started down towards my kitchen to make my morning cup of coffee. When I walked by the front door, I noticed a small slip of paper peeking out from underneath it as if someone tried to slide it under the door. When I picked it up, it revealed a crudely drawn picture of a dark figure and what may have been a disemboweled body in his hands. The paper was sprinkled with these dark red, sticky droplets. It was right then I called the police. Since it appeared that someone had not actually been inside my home, they deemed my call as a low priority and took their time getting to my house. While I was waiting for them, I decided to grab my gun and check the outside of my house. Underneath my bedroom window, I found an old aerosol can and some used matches. There were small scorch marks on the paneling, almost as if someone tried to light the vinyl sliding on fire. In between the scorch marks were pictures of knives and axes drawn in what looked like blood. I ran back inside the house to be greeted by my kids. They had just woken up and were wondering where my roommate was. It was his day off and he would usually make it the point to cook the kids breakfast. I was heading towards his bedroom when I heard the police knocking on the door. I quickly ushered them inside and started to explain what was happening while showing them the messages and comments. The officers stared with blank expressions as I showed them the screenshots. But it wasn't until I showed them the side of the house that they started to get concerned. They questioned me extensively about the possibility that my roommate or kids were playing a prank on me. I assured them that it wasn't my kids or my roommate and even mentioned that I hadn't seen my roommate all morning. The officers took a report and photos while assuring me that they would send someone to collect evidence from the sliding. They told me to try to get a hold of my roommate and said if I didn't hear from him that evening to give them a call back. While they were walking to their patrol car, one of the officers turned and suggested to me that I pack up the kids and run to the hardware store to get a security system. That was all it took for me to drive to the store. With a pandemic, money was tight, but I bought the most state-of-the-art system the store had. Things had already escalated far beyond what I could imagine, and there's no way I could risk my kids or my roommate's safety. It had alarms, cameras, and it would connect to my phone and send me notifications should any of the doors or windows be opened. The kids were antsy, so we rushed home. As we were pulling into the driveway, I noticed the mailman was making his way up the street. 
I got the kids inside and was making my way down the driveway when the mailman pulled up to my mailbox. I was halfway down the driveway when he must have opened the mailbox. I say must have because all I remember was a large flash and an ear shattering boom. The force of the explosion was so strong that it knocked me on my ass. I sat there in shock, watching tatters of the mail and streams of blood and organs dance around me. I didn't even hear the sirens as the police came racing to my house. After being checked out by the paramedics in the back of the ambulance, the police took me inside my house and started asking me questions. Admittedly, I didn't have any answers, but that didn't stop them from asking me. I brought up my stalker and my missing roommate. At that point, I was basically pleading with them. There was no way that this was some sort of coincidence. My hands shook as I stared at the phone in my hands. I knew she had done this. Now I just needed to convince the officers that she was the cause of all of this. While showing the officers the post that my stalker made about me, I noticed the dates. Her final threatening message was posted two days before the last stream and I hadn't seen the post. Could it have been that she was making good on her threats? Did me not reading her stories push her over the edge? When I clicked back on her profile, a message popped up. Without me reading it, I handed my phone to the police officer closest to me. The officer turned pale within moments of reading the message. He started dry heaving and had to leave the room. As my phone was passed from officer to officer, each one had a unique but equally horrified reaction. I still don't know what was in that message and I don't want to. The police took my phone and laptop and put me and my kids up in a hotel a few towns over. After everything that had happened, I was super antsy, so I decided to walk to the store next to the hotel. While I was there, I picked up a cheap pay-as-you-go phone so I could contact my family and let them know that me and my kids were safe. I downloaded the Reddit app so I could see if my stalker had posted anything new and so maybe I could be prepared just in case anything happened. She posted a picture of my roommate's wallet about an hour ago. That's part of what made me decide to document this. I didn't think I was going to get to see my roommate again, alive at least, and wanted there to be a solid paper trail should anything happen to me. As I was finishing typing out everything, I decided to check out her Reddit again, and there is a picture of my hotel room door. I think she is watching me now, because right as I looked up from my screen, my phone started buzzing wildly in my hands. Message after message came through, with no pause. Panicking, I threw the phone on the bed and started weighing out my options. I managed to pop off the grate of the air vent and it looks to go through to the room next door. I've convinced my kids to crawl inside and made them promise to crawl to the next room if they hear anything bad happen. I turned off the heat and air in my room before loosely screwing the grate back on. I'm on the phone with the police now. Thank God this hotel still had the old corded phones in the rooms. I hope I can update this soon, but if I can't, know that I went out fighting, and always be aware of who you are talking to online. Please don't ever be afraid to block someone, and always trust your gut. February 14th. My heart is beating out of my chest. What a day. Love is in the air, and Cupid struck. I've been so lonesome since my beloved Ethan passed, but I'm truly blessed to have met Paul. We've been co-workers for a few weeks, and although I'm typically attracted to the nice guys, I fell head over heels for this biker bad boy. 
I'm so happy I worked up the courage to make a move today. I can give love a chance again. February 17th. Well, Paul began to show his true colors today. The first couple of days of our relationship, he promised me the world. Told me everything I wanted to hear. But it's like a switch flipped. He didn't even touch the dinner I made us tonight. Didn't even thank me for the effort. He called me some pretty awful names too. This is the risk you take with a bad boy though. I'm a big girl. I won't let this ruin things between us. February 20th. I called out of work the past couple days because of the black eye Paul gave me. I don't want anyone to see through the makeup and start asking questions. I don't need the suspicions and gossip at work. These things happen in relationships. I forgive him. February 21st. Things are happening so fast. This is crazy. Paul and I are going to put this life behind us and go off the grid. I'm in the process of packing up essentials we need and then we're off to our forever home. It's a cute little remote cabin in the mountains away from everything and everybody. Moving into a remote cabin with an ungrateful boyfriend who has been emotionally and physically abusive. Crazy right? But the heart wants what the heart wants. People have been talking and I don't want the outside world pulling us apart. I love him and need to try to make this work. I hear Paul screaming from the other room. I better hurry up and pack. Off we go. February 23rd. I'm shaking as I write this. How could I be so stupid? I forgot to double check the locks on Paul's restraints. I had no choice. I had to take his life. I couldn't risk him getting out and attacking me or somehow alerting the police. I'm so heartbroken. I may never find love again. March 1st. Heart be still. I ventured a bit further out than my usual stroll and met the nicest man along the way. He owns a cabin only a mile or so away. I never thought I could move on from Paul, but this man gives me hope. I'll take a walk to his cabin at dark. Wish me luck. The last time the boy was seen alive that Halloween night, he and a few friends were causing mayhem and trick-or-treating. They went to an unlit front porch and rang the bell, despite there being no decorations or signs. The woman who lived there had clearly not opted into the night's festivities. One of the boy's friends claimed that they simply rang the bell once, but the other admitted that they rang and pounded on the door for over a minute before the woman answered. Maybe that played a part in it, and maybe the remains of recently smashed pumpkins all over their shoes did as well. Personally, I believe that all three of these children were rotten. Doesn't validate what she did. But still, she answered the door in a huff, not bothering to ask what they wanted. Trick or treat, the boys yelled out, greedily holding their bags out, driven by the self-entitlement that fueled their terrible behavior that night. According to the more honest of the witnesses, the woman, quote, smiled with her mouth, but not with her eyes. She handed the other two their candy, but the boy received no such gift. For you, she apparently said to him, it'll be a trick. She pulled him inside and slammed the door, locking it before either of his friends could try to help him. While they pounded on the door and cried out, the witnesses could at least agree upon the details concerning what they heard. The boy cried out from the other side of the door, then begged, then fell silent. Well, maybe he was silent. Or maybe his cries couldn't be heard over the woman's cackling. The witnesses ran to the street 
and from our estimation, it took about 15 minutes for them to get someone to call the police. From what we can gather, they've been misbehaving all night, and no one in the neighborhood seemed to believe their claims. By the time a squad car showed up, the boy had been inside the woman's house for about 20 minutes. That's all it took. The door was unlocked when our officers entered the home and followed the blood trail to the kitchen. They noticed the smell first. As it turned out, the pulled apart pieces of the boy's brains and a few bits of his skull were on a baking sheet, roasting in the oven, alongside pumpkin seeds. The boy's body was seated at the table, as if patiently awaiting the nearly finished treats. His head, no longer on his shoulders, was instead set on the plate before him. The top of the boy's head was cut away, replaced by the cap of a jack-o'-lantern. His eyes and nose were gone, later found in the trash bin. The lips, and much of his cheek flesh, had been carved away and discarded as well. Behind his teeth, the officers would see a dim light shining through. A lit candle was resting on his tongue. I love my husband. I know he isn't cheating on me. Now, other women might be suspicious if their husband started coming home in different clothes than they left in. But not me. I trust him. I know he's not cheating on me. Other women might be suspicious if their husband started spending longer hours in the office. Other women would jump to conclusions seeing their husband with so many younger girls. Friends from work, he calls them. Other women might be upset constantly seeing the girls that take up so much of their husband's time. Reminders of the fact that he's never home. But not me. When I watch the news and I see the pictures their family chose for their missing posters, I can't help but smile. My husband isn't cheating on me. Life changes fast. I remember when times were good. When mom and dad were happy and the whole family was still close. Everything unraveled so quickly, it almost doesn't seem real. Mom discovered the messages dad was sending to the mistress. The divorce was bitter and brutal. Violent fights, daily shouting matches, and ultimately dad leaving the house for good. He tried to come around in the beginning and stay connected to my life, but mom always drove him away. The visits became less frequent and eventually stopped altogether. Now life is just me and mom, and it's a living hell. She has completely become unstable and controlling. She lives in constant paranoia, saying that I'll leave her to rot just like my father. My life has become a life sentence, confined to this prison called home. She took me out of school and opted for homeschooling. She won't let me leave the house unsupervised or have any contact with people in the outside world. She has complete control over every aspect of my life. When she discovered that dad was marrying the mistress, she completely snapped. She started to call him incessantly, leaving horrific voicemails. When I asked her to stop, she told me that I speak too much and punished me for talking to her in such a way. I would hear her talking aloud to herself about hurting my dad. I wrote her a loving note, telling her that she needs to get help and stop this. She ripped it in front of me and told me that I'm a spy for my father 
constantly eavesdropping on her. She told me to stop listening in on her conversations and she punished me. This may be my last time writing. I saw my mother place a knife and duct tape in the car before leaving this morning. She saw me looking and told me she'd deal with me when she got home for watching her every move. She's already taken my tongue and ears. I don't want to lose my eyes now. Day 1. I still can't truly believe it, but then again, who could possibly believe they would see the planet they called home destroyed and live to tell about it? The feel and sound of the sun's explosion in the distance is indescribable, but we reached Mars. We terraformed a fraction of the planet and have hope for the future. The artificial sun provides light and heat we need. The lake and water generators allow us to drink, nurse the crops, and the livestock gives us food and a sense of familiarity on this foreign land. This is day one of the post-solar world. Day three. Everyone is cooperating. No arguing. No egos. No judgment. It's a beautiful sight to behold. I believe the event has given us a new appreciation on life. Day six. The excessive iron levels in the soil has made it nearly impossible to grow crops. We discovered an area of land, about two football fields in size, where the toxicity is low enough that crops can grow. Crisis averted. Day 10. The couple who settled on the fertile lands when we first arrived are now demanding livestock as a payment for use of their land. Some foolish people have actually begun to do this, but I won't condone such madness. Day 12. The couple have hired people to monitor the land with promise of extra food. They discovered the seeds I planted and dug them up. I also witnessed a man trespassing on the land today and he was brutally beaten by the new guards. At least I have my livestock. Day 15. This is insanity. The people who settled along the lake when we arrived are now building a fence along the lakefront. They are demanding food in return for water access. Day 20. Mobs have broken out across the land, some targeting the fertile lands, some targeting the lakefront. People are desperate. I saw one couple trying to exchange their child for food. They had ran out of livestock to give. The paid guards from both sides put down the uprising. No trial will be had here. The guards quickly carried out executions of all involved. During the commotion, I was able to sneak down to the lake to fill my buckets. Today I cried when the water reached my lips. How has it come to this? Day 30. The controllers of the land and water are allowing people to work in exchange for food and water that they desperately need. I used my final chicken for water. This may be my last chance at survival. Day 45. Someone set a fire to the fertile lands last night and used the farmed excess iron to poison the water supply. Even with the impending doom, the controllers of the land and water won't free us from our servitude. Rumors have spread that they'll use us like livestock now. We brought everything we needed to succeed in this new world. Unfortunately, we also brought man. I peered over the edge, eight stories down. Looked like quite the drop. I questioned how fatal it would be. The internet said you had a 50-50 shot of dying if you fell four stories, so the odds seemed good. 
I took a moment to appreciate the atmosphere from the roof of the garage. Even in those late hours, the heart of the city was alive in the distance, but it was truly dead out on the waterfront. I closed my eyes, breathing in the biting winter cold. The moon was mostly obscured by clouds that threatened rain all afternoon before failing to deliver. The stillness of the air echoed the respectful silence of so many churches and cemeteries. All in all, a nice night to end things on. I climbed up onto the edge. Suddenly the air was electric, and the view was both terrifying and exhilarating. A slight wind pushed at my back, a threatening, playful dare. This is the thrill I loved. The fear of falling, of dying. The fear, fantastic. After enjoying the rush for a few minutes more, my phone started buzzing. She was on her way. I climbed down and returned to my hiding spot behind her van and I waited. The security guard was very predictable. Her routine was always specific. This was the second of eight hourly patrols and from weeks of watching her, I knew that she would be headed that way at exactly 2.34. She didn't see me during her first patrol, so I knew I would remain hidden. This was her favorite spot, or at least that's what it seemed like. Sometimes she smoked while looking over the edge, but this time she was simply enjoying the view. I couldn't blame her. The lights from the buildings on the other side of the river twinkled like stars on the water's surface. A captivating sight. Before she could return to her patrol, I snuck up behind her and pushed her over the edge. She didn't scream on the way down. I was almost disappointed, but then I considered that she could have been too petrified by fear and that made me feel better about it. The fear was my entire motivation, after all. I was looking down at the body, waiting for the blood to start pooling around her. When she began to stir, I started cursing my bad luck, but then she rolled over and looked up at me. She was completely unharmed. No blood, no wounds, just a smile. I ran when she stood back up, heart pounding in my ears, a cold sweat washing over my body and stinging my eyes. I don't know if she let me get away or if I escaped her, but I'm going back there tonight. I'm afraid of whatever she is, but that's the entire point. I was terrified, but God, what a rush. I thought I was a monster. Now I've seen one, and I need to see her again. I've always hated those storage unit auction TV shows. As someone who actually buys the contents of storage units so I can sell them at my thrift store, I can tell you with absolute certainty that those shows are complete bullshit. All those shows have done is convince idiots with too much money to flood the market. They jack up the prices, lowering my potential profits, and they feel ripped off when they realize they bought 20 bucks worth of junk for 10 times as much. They have no idea what it's really like to buy this as a career. It's not a war. We're not hunters. And we're certainly not searching for buried treasure. It's a business. Besides, we don't just find valuable items that can be resold. We find mysteries within those metal walls. Stories that were meant to remain locked away from the outside world. You buy what's inside. And that becomes your responsibility. Those mysteries become yours to solve, and those stories become yours to tell. 
I can't sell these things, but perhaps I can make use of them. Here's a good one that might entertain you, or at least keep you away from my auctions. This was into my second year running the store with my partner. We were looking into a unit from the outside and something caught my eye. This dull little metal lockbox half covered by a blanket surrounded by clothes and trash bags. No one else saw it. I got the lot for 20 bucks. I made a beeline for the box as soon as I paid for the lot, climbing over bags and clothes until I had it in my hands. I shook it and it seemed full of small things. It didn't sound like coins, but I allowed myself to imagine that it did. Anything could be inside, right? The box was locked and I had no key, so I decided to pry it open at the store. In the meantime, we had a lot full of old clothes and blankets to move. Since nothing was fragile, we just threw it all into our van and brought it back to the store. We washed and dry everything before putting it on the racks, but my partner wanted to sort it out first. While he was busy with that, I started prying the lunchbox open with a flathead screwdriver. When my partner walked over to explain that he thought something was off about the clothes, the strange amount of variety in sizes and fit, I got the box open. I stared slightly at the contents while he wondered aloud where all the different clothes came from. Maybe it's all from another thrift store, he guessed, or a lot of different people. Look at this, I replied. I turned the box around, allowing my partner to see what was inside. The box was filled to the brim with human teeth. I was six. I was at a park. I was wearing a pink and white sundress. My mother was talking to her friend. The park was not that crowded. There were not many people there. There was a mat with toys on it. The couple that was by it said it was okay with them for me to play. After about 20 minutes, the nice lady asked if I wanted to go to the toy store. I was so excited. Before I could get in her car, a girl with jeans and a red top grabbed my hand and pulled me away from her. When she did, I started yelling. That caused the lady to panic, driving away without me. My mom ran over. She was panicked. She noticed I had disappeared and was desperately looking for me. At the time, I didn't even know what was going on. I was just mad at the girl for preventing me from going to get more toys. When I found out what the lady was trying to do, though... I still cannot see people in sundresses without shivering. The lady that tried to take me was never caught. Her description matched a woman who kidnapped 28 other kids. They weren't as lucky as I was. My mother tried to find the girl that saved me. She left before my mother found me. I often wondered who she was until yesterday. You see, I often walk around that same park hoping to find the girl that saved my life. Yesterday, I put on a cute red top and walked around the park. It was then I saw the lady who tried to take me. She was holding a child by the hand, leading her away. On impulse, I grabbed the child and pulled her out of her hand. When the girl screamed, the lady panicked and drove away. Stunned by the familiarity of the situation, I looked at the crying girl. She wore a pink and white sundress.
I fostered animals in my spare time. I took care of the wounded, and once they were back on their feet, I would return them into the wild. I guess it was kind of a hobby for me. They told me that there was someone in need of help in my pond. A small human laying on a lily pad, no bigger than my thumb. I scooped her up and she didn't move or try to swim away. She just laid there, lifelessly, in my hand. I took her home and made a small bed out of tissues and placed her in a shoebox. I left the lid open as I went to bed that night. When I woke up, she was still in the box. I would bring her bits of food, but she wouldn't touch it. This continued for almost three days. I worried that she would starve, so I started to tell her about the food and how it's made. She would turn and look at me sometimes, but she didn't eat. I kept trying until one night I made spaghetti. It was in the middle of talking when I tilted the plate too much. A meatball rolled off and stopped before her. She picked up the meatball covered in marinara sauce and took a bite out of it. Her first words to me were, yummy. She became livelier as the days passed and she would even sit there on my shoulder. I was worried that she would fall so I started buying shirts with pockets. She was with me everywhere I went. I bought her a dollhouse, doll sized clothing, and even a small bed so she can sleep. She always cheered me up and before I knew it, my whole life revolved around her. One day when I was eating dinner, she finally told me why she was outside in the middle of the pond. She told me that she had a family, but they were murdered. She had escaped by swimming away and told me, there are others like me. They hunt and eat us. They're cannibals. That night I felt anxious and sat up in my bed and stared at the dollhouse. She was sleeping soundly in her bed. I got up and sat in the kitchen for God knows how long. I had to stop them somehow. Before I knew it, I had fallen asleep on the table. I jerked awake and headed back to my room. I opened the door and peeked into her room, only to see her missing. My heart stopped. I looked closer and there were specks of red all over. A small man about her size stood in the corner of her room, hunched over, and its face was completely distorted. He smiled, teeth sharp and crooked, mishap in red eyes locked with mine as he held out a gold nugget about the size of a dollar coin. Here's your half, as promised. People were outraged and disturbed by the mass shootings, but then a celebrity had a baby, so they forgot. People were scared about global warming, but the stock market nosedived, so they forgot. People were protesting the war, but a new online challenge became popular, so they forgot. People questioned the gun confiscation, but a new movie came out, so they forgot. People questioned the mandatory curfew, but they saw many beatings and lifeless bodies at the rally, so they just tried to forget. People questioned the lies, but homes were raided. People were taken away in the night, and they were forgotten. People were once happy, free, at least I think they were. Information is limited now, and I can only regurgitate the writings my father left behind before he was taken. I miss my dad. He had the warmest smile and the brightest blue eyes. At least I think they were blue. I wish I could remember.
There are only two things worth knowing about hell. You wouldn't be there if you didn't deserve it, and you can't get out unless someone offers you a ticket. You're probably imagining all sorts of other things worth knowing, such as what the demons look like, and how you'll be punished, and what exactly the thermostat is set to. There's no point speculating though, because all the unpleasant sights and feelings you're imagining are the sensations of a living body that you left far behind. There's no torture worse than the knowledge you're right where you belong. And if you don't believe, I politely suggest you to go to hell and see for yourself. When I was alive, I would have done anything in the name of love. The lengths I would go through just to see her, to hold her, to lose myself in her, until I didn't know myself when I was alone. Until inevitably came the day when I became a stranger to myself and she became a stranger to me. The two of us had turned to poison in each other's veins. Then I would leave her to pursue a fresh intoxication to make me feel whole again. Happy so long as I didn't remember those I left behind. I had a child, more than one, perhaps many more. I know there was a little girl who suffered for me, shuffled from home to home until she was swallowed by the streets. I know there was a little boy that wished his father would come back again. Although perhaps he wouldn't have if he knew that his father was someone like me. I would tell you their names if I could. I would have to recite them to myself every moment I was in hell. Wishing the best for them, though I know they didn't get the best for me. But I was dead, and they were lost. And that's how it was always going to be if I hadn't received a ticket. It wasn't something I earned, or found, or stole. Though the devil knows what I would have done to get it. I don't know how long I was mired in misery, but I do know there was no shortage of others who have languished for longer. All that matters is that it was into my hands she pressed that folded paper, and my ears that were blessed with her sweet words. You're free to leave. No one will try to stop you anymore. And don't worry if you ever change your mind. It's a two-way ticket. You can come back whenever you want. I wish I could describe her, my savior, but what word does justice to those who dwell beyond living senses? I could call her Grace, but you would only see slender feet dancing through the grass without capturing the light of her soul. I could call her Hope, but then you would only feel the flush of excitement beneath your skin and miss the infinite in her cloudless eyes. No, I shall not sully her name with any of her improvised words. It's enough that you know that she had the ticket and that she was giving it to me. Why would anyone want to come back? I asked. You might as well ask why anyone would come at all, is all she would reply. And so I passed beneath the shadows that were casting without light, and each time the horrors of the shade loomed over me, I would close my eyes and present the piece of paper in my hand, only to feel the pressure of their presence melt back into the dark. I did not slow to listen to the anguish of those left behind, nor did it hinder when I rose into the endless lights. All I could think of was getting out, starting over, not sparing a thought for what lay waiting on the other side. The light I entered was more than something to be seen. It was something to be felt, to be heard, to be smelled, all rushing back to me in a crushing wave. I persisted in the emptiness beyond life for so long that I'd forgotten what it was like to be again. It was all too loud, too hot, too bright, all intermingled so I can't tell you which was which, nor up from down, or good from bad. Too much, too fast, too hard. I did the only thing I could do, 
I began to cry, and then sob, and then wail. And that was exactly what I was supposed to do. I had been born again, but it was different this time. Staring up at my mother's face as she cradled me in her arms, I remembered everything that I had endured thus far. I even remembered that this woman was my mother, and the man with his arms around her was my father, and that we were going to go home to the same blue carpeted room I remember growing up in. I had just been born, I had just been born into my own body. But if that were true, why couldn't I stop crying once I realized what was going on? Why would my arm move without command? Why would I grab the hold of the end of the fork, even though it was sharp? Why did I think these thoughts, yet be locked inside a child that couldn't even speak out loud? I hadn't been born into my body, I had been born into my old life, and I was trapped inside without being able to change a thing. A prisoner to make every mistake, a helpless victim to rise and fall with the iron whims of fate. I could see and hear and feel everything that the body experienced, but my thoughts were cut off from those of the boy that would grow up to be me. I couldn't warn him of what was to come or change my inevitable actions or so much as a whisper to let him know that I was there. The newborn body spent most of the time sleeping and gave me lots of time to really think about what was to come. I was going to relive the same embarrassing moments, every sickness, every default all the way until my own death. Every long night, every heartbreak, every regret. Even worse this time around, knowing that they were coming, despite my body fooling itself into a moment of happiness. Somewhere in the back of the child's mind sat I, with a folded piece of paper still resting on my hand. It was a two-way ticket, and I could go back. But right now, this child was only sleeping. And how could I say that I would prefer hell to this? I would wait. I told myself, until I couldn't take it anymore. One day, I'd know my life had been ruined and I'd use the ticket then, but not today or tomorrow. I had spent a long, long time in the darkness and I had forgotten how beautiful the world could be. Even if I couldn't control this new body, I still experienced the thrill and pleasure as it made each new discovery, the first strawberry, the first dog, the first time seeing the ocean from the window of the car. I had seen infinity after I died, and I saw it again through another child's eyes. And before I knew it, years were starting to pass by. I knew I was reliving my exact life, but it was amazing how many things I had forgotten over time. Even the childhood memories that I did possess, vague and fading as they may be, did nothing to ruin these experiences. It was almost as good as living for the first time. But now, I spent so long as a silent passenger that it didn't even feel strange not to choose how the story would play out. I'd wince when I knew I was about to slide down the splintery post, but I also remember how it barely even hurt when I woke up the next day. I felt the hot rage of not getting a toy I wanted at the store, and then I would remember that I had gotten that toy on Christmas that year, and that I had broken it within the first 20 minutes. Every hurt and injustice that I had been dreading so much had seemed like the end of the world at the time, but now I was just living through them and knew that none of them would really matter before long. So I let the years slip on, and I watched as I grew into the same man I ever was. And then I met her again, and I felt the heart in my body as if it were my own. Looking at her as I did in the moment we first met, I couldn't understand how I ever stopped loving her. But I would understand, because I had no choices but to live through it again. 
I'd relive how every little stress and insecurity and pettiness in me grew until it swallowed me up. I'd yell at her and lie to her and hurt her in ways deeper than flesh could heal. Yet here I was, trapped and helpless as I watched how I couldn't stop smiling, how her eyes would dart away but always find their way back to mine. I knew what it felt like when all the love drained away from those eyes only to be replaced by revulsion and remorse. My body didn't understand any of it though. It only felt like flesh of a youth and the bubbling of love, so blind and lost that it would chase her again, no matter the end. But I knew better, sitting alone at the back of the mine with a folded piece of paper in my hand. There was no point in going back to hell if I was only trying to avoid grief and pain. Hell would be no kinder to me. Here there would still be some moments of happiness to come. But going back to hell would banish even these. If I was only living for myself, then staying must have been the right choice to make. And yet, if I stayed, I knew that I would not be the only one who suffered. Whatever I endure in hell, at least I would be sparing my love and her future child of a life with me in it. Better that I should go back where I belong than force fate and play to these hands. I'm ready to go back now, I said to no one in particular. I still got my ticket, and I want to go back. I closed myself away from the light and the noise and the smell of the world, and I was in the darkness once more, and out of the darkness I felt a touch upon my wrist. I thought it was my savior, my grace, come take me back to the other side. Yet when I opened my eyes, I saw myself in the living world, with my future love smiling at me. And that's when I knew I was opening my own eyes this time. And when I folded my hands over hers, I knew that was the choice I was making now. One that had never happened the first time around. Whether you're ready remains to be seen, said no one in particularly in reply. Are you feeling okay? Do you want to get out of here? My love asked me, just the way she had on the day we first met. No, I don't want to leave. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. From the way she smiled, she must have known I was talking about her. My ticket had gotten me out of hell, but has it taken me back again? I suppose that's up for me to decide.